0: Pretty quickly, got down to the three best. Just narrow the field. Don't don't worry about the guys who aren't going to get there. Um, you got people who are who are. What was what was happening in the market was we, there were a lot of groups that were close to raising or had just raised, and so groups that are close to raising are really incentivized to get deals in their pipeline, get LOI signed, because again, they're going to go to these investment firms. They're going to say, "We've already got this many deals under LOI. You know, give us a higher." pre-money valuation, give us credit. This is truly what's happening. You know, Give us credit for these deals we haven't closed yet because we have a 97% success rate of closing deals we get under LOI. So they're nearly a sure thing. So they wanted to get things under LOI if they're close to raising and groups that had just raised have a bunch of money they need to deploy and are flush with cash and just competing for businesses and needing to execute on what they said they were going to do.
1: Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan. And today on the show, John is joined by Dr. Joseph Marchell, who sold his company, Old Brown Dog Veterinary Partners, forget this, around 28 times EBITDA. But before we get there, today's conversation between Joe and John is quite technical. And you're going to hear terms such as arbitrage and waterfall and tag along rights, which you may not have heard of before. So I'd encourage you to head over to the episode page, which can be found over at built and just have that open as you're following along with today's episode. Okay. So now let me tell you a little more about today's guest, Joe, who started old brown dog veterinary partners after noticing a unique opportunity in the market. Now, after acquiring three family practices for around 10 times EBITDA, he implemented a streamlined operational strategy, which allowed him to flip the business for almost three times the purchase price in less than two years. Here to share with John how he did it is Dr. Joseph Marchell. Enjoy.
2: Joe Marcell, welcome to Build to Sell Radio.
0: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me.
2: How did you start Old Brown Dog? Give me the origin story of this company.
0: Sure. So I, I am a veterinarian in education. Uh, I am a second-generation veterinarian, meaning both my parents were veterinarians. So growing up, I've been in this industry my whole life. Um, as such, I kind of saw a lot of trends coming as I was going in, getting into school, and one of those big trends was a uh, surge in private equity interest. Uh, especially from mid-2010s forward. Uh, so as I was going through school, I was kind of focused on this trend. You know, A lot of people had negative uh, perspectives on it. And I really wanted to be involved. I wanted to see how it was working from behind the scenes, just get a better understanding because it, it seemed like something that was going to be unchangeable. And so I went to a company called Rare Breed Veterinary Partners right out of vet school. And they were a uh, private investment-backed platform with zero hospitals. We... Uh, s- we closed our first deal the day after I started, and then in six months we did another thirteen or fourteen deals. I was the fifth hire. I was the first veterinarian hired at the company at the corporate headquarters. And when you're at a company that size, you, you do everything. You know, you you go, you do HR when you got to do it. You do operations when you sure. got to do it. You're doing M and A advisory when you got to do it. So um, let
2: me just pause you here. So let me understand. So your at rare breed and your the deal the business model is to buy small independent vet veterinary clinics and then roll them up, take advantage of sort of economies of scale and efficiencies and centralized head office and then eventually I mean the private equity playbook in most industries is to like roll them all up get all all kinds of advantages, and then go on at some point to sell is that was that the rare breed model that they were essentially
0: by and large. Yeah. I mean, tons of nuance within there, but absolutely. Yeah.
2: Okay. So I got one question that is, that is screaming in my head right now is the vets that I know are very altruistic. Like they're, you know, they, they love animals effectively. And they love being with, you know, treating animals and they'd rather be with animals than people sometimes I think. But it sounds like, you went to veterinary school almost with this sort of business side of the vet veterinary industry in your mind. Like, am I getting that right?
0: That's right. Yeah, and you. you know, to, to be fair, I, I love animals. Uh, I got my undergrad in farming. I spent two and a half years on dairy farms in northern Vermont. You know, getting up at three in the morning. Um, <laughs> <That's really neat. laughs> but I love, but I love numbers too and business. The, the business aspect of veterinary medicine was really interesting. Lots interesting. of opportunity there yeah. too, because to your point, a lot of veterinarians don't, don't like business and that creates for a lot of inefficiencies when a lot of the veterinary infrastructure in this company has been historically managed by veterinarians. And yeah, so there, there's a lot of opportunities there that it, you know, win-win for, for both the veterinarians who, who practice out of these businesses and the managers and operators who see the opportunities.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm always telling my kids, like, it's the combination. It's not just being good at one thing. It's good when you're good at a couple of things, like where those two things intersect is where there is, you know, opportunity to be had because it's, you know, it's, it's a very unique circumstance to love animals and be good at business, which sounds like you were and are, and that's a rare combination of skills. And so you you put those to work at Rare Breed, but at some point you got the idea to leave and start old Brown Dog. So, talk, tell me about that transition. What what precipitated that?
0: Sure. So, like I said, you know, um, second generation veterinarian, parents had been in this industry forever. Certainly, in the back of my mind, I'd always wanted to go and work with them. I saw what was happening at Rare Breed. They, you know, were doing a really good job. There was some incredible economic opportunities, just as far as the arbitrage between what multiples you were paying for a single veterinary hospital and what multiples you were able to raise at once you had you know even three or four practices was enough to to create a pretty large arbitrage. When you um, say arbitrage define that for folks. Sure so when we would buy a practice and this was this was pre-pandemic so this was 3 4 years ago when we would buy a practice we'd spend 7 8 times ebitda adjusted ebitda to purchase that single practice. When we would go to investment firms uh, to raise money, they would they would let us raise 14, 15, 16 times EBITDA, and so without doing any improvements to these practices, we would see a doubling of the value that asset owned by a portfolio of veterinary hospitals was worth twice as much when than when it was owned on its own.
2: And that makes no sense to me. Like, why would an why would an investor be willing to spend that much of a premium? Like, I get a small premium. Like, I get owner operated business, probably somewhat inefficient, so we'll, we'll we'll buy it at a small multiple. But why would a sophisticated investor be willing to pay two times what you could buy like an individual vet clinic for? Like, that doesn't. That doesn't make sense to me. Like, do you? you, I know that's not your job, but like, do you have any sense of why they would pay such a premium for a collection of vet hospitals?
0: It's it's a long answer. I'll try to keep it very concise. Yeah. Uh, I I think one of the first components of this is that it de-risks any single asset. Mm -hmm. A portfolio of veterinary hospitals. If one has an issue with labor, doesn't. Necessarily mean they all will, so your your volatility comes down, which mm-hmm. allows you to pay slightly higher prices. Um, there's also the optimization of centralizing functions like finance. You can start to see and buying power with vendors. You can start to see pretty significant margin expansion as you get larger in size enough to start justifying some of these these arbitrages. Um, and then and then really it's the the sophistication and the aggressiveness of the operators. There's a lot of of you know you miss a single year of price increases and that compounds for the rest of that business's life, and it's not uncommon for veterinarians to say, oh gosh, you know it's been a hard year, uh, don't want to raise our prices too much, you know hurt our the, our clients, which totally get, totally appreciate, but you know a, a, a more I would use sophisticated operator would say that it's just the way the prices go. We got to do it. They do it. The market works and it's, you know, it becomes efficient again, and these places continue to grow, there is a lot of opportunity for the people who are, who are really paying attention to their finances on.
2: Yeah. I mean, this stuff is happening in every industry right now. Like veterinary hospitals, for sure. Dental practices, car dealerships, car washes, private equity is saying, wow, like these mom and pop operators are, are leaving a ton of money on the table, whether it's, uh, Right under the nose, like a price increase that could totally right. be justified. Or it's just that you just don't have any economies of scale when you're a one person shop and, and it 's not because they 're bad operators it 's just because they don 't have the, the scale of, of ten or twenty operators. so this is happening in every industry, and it 's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because i uh, I wanted to kind of really understand this in more detail so so you 're a rare breed and you, and you 're seeing this this arbitrage <laughs> like yeah. almost overnight they 're doubling the value of these companies without really you know, spending ten years operating them, there, there—it's almost overnight. So, at what point did you leave Rare Breed and and go start Old Brown Dog?
0: Yeah, I was I was watching the market change. I was seeing uh, multiples continue to go up. I saw my parents starting to consider some of their exit opportunities and talking and getting LOIs. And I decided that hey, I'm going to take this risk. I'm going to reach out to you guys. Use these these two one and a half practices we had in the family and another one and a half we were very friendly with to start our platform and get things rolling uh so i quit basically my- decided to to take a page out of the rare
2: breed playbook and say hey I like i've already you know i've got great connections with 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 vets in my hometown like my parents run one we've got these old family friends who own like so to collectively you've got 3 target hospitals or whatever you want to call them that you, you you've got a friendly relationship with and you're like I don't need t- to be a salaried guide at air uh, what, what was it called rare breed Rare breed I can do this I can follow the playbook right and you
0: right yeah. And, and we were going to, it was a less aggressive model. We weren't going to take any equity investment. We had a lending partner that was willing to look at the cash flows of those three practices and, uh, lend to us off of those cash flows in addition to the acquisitions we were doing. So what I mean by that is if I wanted to go out and buy a practice with a million in EBITDA, you know, this, this lender would lend up to seven times EBITDA on that veterinary. There were a veterinary specific lender at the time. Um, they'd lend me seven times EBITDA to buy that practice. If seven times EBITDA wasn't competitive and there were better offers on the table, they'd let me dip into the cash flow of one of the existing three practices that I already owned and use that cash flow to get more leverage on these acquisitions. So I could pay 10 times EBITDA for another practice where most lenders were nowhere near that aggressive or allowed for anywhere near that much, um, uh, leverage on any single asset. Right.
2: Okay. Cause you're like a young guy coming out of school, Totally, you know, and and, and you how long did you, were you at rare breed? Six months. Oh, so you're just there for a little bit. So you're, you don't have 10 times even to buy one of these practices in cash. So I had no money
0: at all. <laughs> yeah.
2: You're looking at debt. Okay. So you, you, you approach your parents with this idea. What was their reaction? Um,
0: Reserved optimism. You know, I, I think a lot of people assume that being the son, you get a lot of favor and a lot of, uh, uh, a, you know, just a, that it's going to be easy. It frankly, it's kind of the opposite. Um, they've seen you, uh, at 12 years old trying it to do something Yeah, trying to do <laughs> something stupid. And yeah. sometimes it's hard for them to overcome that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I had to come, what I had to do is I had to come to them with an incredibly compelling model that, didn 't you know it it just it was hard to refute and and frankly with again with this the spread between what you could buy a practice at and what you could sell it for once it was packaged up in a larger group that was compelling enough i mean you you could buy a practice when I started you could buy a practice, have its revenues decline ten percent for three years and still sell it at a uh profit or, or you know at a greater asset valuation than when you purchased it now that 's not true any longer the market has again corrected for that but at the time it was just so compelling and it was uh there wasn't as much competition for these small you know 500,000 to a million in ebitda uh type practices that are littered around New England where i live
2: okay so so what was the offer that you were bringing to your parents cuz you didn't come with a check in hand saying i sure. want to buy your your practice what was the pitch like what was what were you offering them effectively so,
0: so their practices were on the market the packaged with this third hospital that we ended up folding in as well but they were on the market as three distinct entities that had no cooperation but were selling as a package that got them some some part of the arbitrage but i said if if we if we give me 2 years let me pull in professional management to these hospitals let me pull in you know a, a true management structure with HR compliance with finance and bookkeeping, all centralized, optimized. You know, let's really dress this bride, so to speak. I think we can get so much more for these practices than you're getting currently.
2: What were they getting offered currently? Like, what were they getting
0: it, was, it was about $10 million at the time.
2: And what, for the, what, what did that represent as a multiple of EBITDA on the collection?
0: It was, a, it was about 10 times EBITDA. 10 okay. times adjusted EBITDA. And we can talk a bit about adjustments because it was starting to get pretty aggressive at that point as far as what reported EBITDA was and what adjusted EBITDA was.
2: Okay. So, so, so adjusted EBITDA is, is about a million bucks on this collection of three. Yep. And they're they're getting offers of around ten.
0: Yep. And and, and I, no real estate included.
2: Okay. And and you've just come from rare breed where you're like, man, like I think we can
0: get way more
2: for this if we dress this up and and really professionalize it, integrate it, make it one as opposed to three disparate and so that's the opportunity you were pitching, right?
0: Yeah. Cause what was happening is I was seeing that the margin or not the margin, the, the multiple expansion that, w- that was occurring in the early phase of these platforms was significant. You know, you'd maybe raise at seven times when you had one practice, you'd get 10 times at three. And when you got to. S- you know, eight, seven practices you were raising at 17, 18 times.
2: And when you say raising, you mean you're getting people to value the company at those multiples.
0: Right. And you're either taking on new equity to go out and purchase more, or, you know, you're exiting or you're you're selling a percentage of your equity to, to uh, diversify your own personal assets.
2: Okay. Okay. So your folks are are thinking of uh, uh, you know, retiring at some point. I'm guessing they're at an age and stage where they're like, I wouldn't mind getting some liquidity here and, and selling this business. And they're getting offers of around 10, but that's yeah. not all in their genes because they've, they've, they've got half of this collection of three. And so they're doing right. the math. And you're saying, look, we can get a lot more for this.
0: Now, and, go ahead. And I was going to, yeah. I mean, that, that's totally correct. And there's taxes, there's advisor fees. I mean, it just, it eats away quickly.
2: Yeah. 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 And what did you think you could get if you did all the things that you had in mind? Like again, the professionalizing, the integrating, like what did you think was a better more reasonable multiple?
0: So part of the plan, the initial plan, and this was prior to the pandemic was to again, leverage this debt to bring on a couple of additional practices to grow that multiple that we would see at exit. My hope was to get to between five and seven practices in three to five years, see... Market returns on revenue growth see sub- significant, but not ab- absurd margin expansion to EBITDA by optimizing our price structure, getting a little bit of buying power, bringing, you know, uh, buying hospitals that weren't part of a buying group into a buying group and getting deeper discounts on inventory items, sure. pharmaceutical items that we would then resell at the same prices. Uh, my models predicted mid eight figure exit in three to five years with with substantial amount of debt brought on in that time to do. Okay.
2: So when you, when you were thinking like in terms of multiple of EBITDA that you thought you might be able to get in the future, if you did all those things. So you thought it was a two-part play. One was you could improve EBITDA by messing with pricing and making it a more profitable business and so forth, getting economy skills better. So you're going to make the EBITDA bigger, but you yep. also thought you might get a better multiple of EBITDA, I'm assuming. What did you think the multiple could be if it was professionalized?
0: I was hoping to get 16 times. And I was hoping to have our adjusted EBITDA between 20 and 25%.
2: Okay, got it. So that would have been a big lift on where it was today at around 10%. So you're like, we can do better, both profitability, but also multiple. And 16 times was what uh, Rare Breed was buying companies, or Rare Breed was raising money at. So they...
0: It was was what companies of you know three to five practices, we're getting in the market at that time. Yeah, yep. Rare Breed yep. was different; they were going for a hyper aggressive growth strategy. They're they're in a different stratosphere at this point. But um, if you had between five and ten practices, you were getting sixteen times in the market. Wow, it's
2: just incredible.
0: Yeah, incredible multiples, and it I went was, up from there.
2: Yeah, well, we'll get to that. So, I'm really curious, though. <laughs> <laughs> about your parents reaction, and I have to joke, Joe, because my kids are just going off to university, yeah. and you know i 'm forking over the bill for the <laughs> for the tuition totally. and i'm like man it 's a lot of money and and so i 'm just imagining your folks and again i don 't you don 't need to tell me who paid for the but here you 've just done an undergrad in farming, and then you 've done the the veterinary i 'm assuming there was a pretty big bill for this fancy education. <laughs> and then you come to them and you're like, thanks for paying for my education. Now I want to, you know, buy your business with your know, leverage. And because I'm so smart, because of all the education you bought, I- I'm going <laughs> to, you know, sell it for a whole lot more down the road. And, and so I could imagine them thinking, hold on a second, like if it's so easy, like, why don't we just do what Joe's proposing? And why do we need Joe? Because he's in our mind a kid. Do you know what I'm getting at? Like all totally. of those dynamics, <laughs> families and stuff must have been going through their head at some point. Uh,
0: totally. And you know, and just to throw out some some numbers to make it all real, I had about two hundred thousand dollars in student debt. Okay. I had to pay about ten thousand dollars in clawback fees to leave Rare Breed to do this. You know, we were, and and be completely frank. I needed my parents to be the operators. I didn't know how to operate these businesses. Right. I knew how to build the strategy that would increase the value of them, but I needed operators. You know, long term, and that was the, that really was the the message to them was, hey, let's let's we have very complementary skill sets. I understand this financial strategy that we can use to dramatically increase the value of these hospitals. You guys have operated them for 30 years and you know how to actually implement these solutions that we're going to need in order to get the strategy from A to B. And so the, the, the message then wasn't, Hey, let me buy your practices and take advantage of all the upside. The message was, you know, work with me here on this strategy that I'm proposing so that we can participate in the upside together we structured the the initial JV structure when we brought the three hospitals together was built specifically to do that so we built a waterfall uh, mechanism where using preferred equity the original three practice owners participated in the first 10 million dollars at an exit event on proportions based on you know the value of the hospital they were bringing to the table um so that it essentially what it was essentially saying was hey you know that LOI that you got that you could take right now and cash out I will guarantee you that money before I see a dime at any exit event. And then after this threshold, we're going to participate at these percentages. And so for me, that was a, a quarter of the company after the $10 million threshold. And so... And then,
2: and, and then the other guys shared the other the other 75% of the... Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> yep. So then we... Exactly. So my shares diluted theirs at that point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the specificity here, Joe, because again, I I've, I've sort of... I've kind of heard of these deals and I've been as skeptical as I am today. I'm like, how does this all work? This sounds crazy. Like if you could get 16 times, why wouldn't you just get, but now I get it. So you're, you're not asking for free money. You're saying, look, I'm going to get you your 10 million no matter what. And, and if all goes well and I do my job right, um, we're going to get a whole truckload more and I'm going to be paid on the extra, not just not from dollar one. I'm, I'm, you're going to get your 10 and then I'm going to start. Participating. And that's what you call a waterfall.
0: That was what our advisors called it. And that's what we ended up calling it through the process. Whether that's truly what the, you know, some PE guy might tell me that's not what a waterfall is. (laughs) Yeah. We'll
2: get, we'll get someone to explain that. But that, that, that makes sense to me. Maybe people can Google it too. We'll put in the show notes to fit to the actual definition. Uh, That is super helpful. And so, you had skin in the game because you had the student debt. Now, when you took on the debt, so you, you start this company, Old Brown Dog, and that is a purpose-built entity, a legal entity, I'm assuming, to buy these three practices. Is that right? And then incremental practices, the vision was to, to buy other practices. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Okay, so you got this legal entity called Old Brown Dog, and the, the other people own parts of it commensurate with their shareholdings of of the, um, the the three businesses that are in it today, and that business is going to take on some debt. Like Old Brown Dog, the company is taking on some debt in order to uh, to 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 take advantage of some of these efficiencies and buy other practices. How much debt did that entity take on?
0: In the end, zero dollars. In the end. The plan was to take on debt. However, we started, so, so we hit the ground running. We get the three practices rolled in. We do the JV structure. We get the operating agreement set up. And then I, I hit the road and I drive 30 to 40,000 miles a year to practices all around New England, as far south as Long Island. Um, I am visiting everybody I can. I am telling them what I want to do. We are participating in, it, plenty of processes to buy small practices i mean these are these are we 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 were on a deal uh, it was us and two other acquirers it was five total employees it was a single doctor practice they had 1.2 million in revenue that revenue hadn't grown in 3 years their their revenue cagr for 3 years was 0% <laughs> their ebitda was their EBITDA margin was eleven percent and it was actually kind of decreasing over time. The facility needed to be updated there were every person in that company was a key man there was there were so many risks involved yeah we we put a bid in our final bid was two million dollars for the business, six hundred thousand for the property, so two point six million total to the owner we were paying him. I think it was nearly 12 times our adjusted EBITDA at that point for you know it, we were giving credit for synergies we were going to create buying power that we already had that he that that this business wouldn't have had without us and we were the third bidder in line we wow. were we were the lowest bidder on that deal um and and that was that was happening across you know uh, from small to large practices I mean so you it, were-
2: you were trying to buy these practices, realize against this vision that you had about, and like no deal. They're just, the, the numbers are going up and up and up and interesting.
0: They were paying, they were paying two times, two and a half times, three times revenue for, for, for wow. practices that had a hundred to a 200,000 in EBITDA. I mean, we, we weren't able to do it with, even with, you know, even with the ability to leverage the cash flow of the practices we already had this. The other thing you have to remember is that we started this company. I quit my job February, mid, Middle of February 2020, three weeks later, COVID mm-hmm. shut the whole world down. Um, and we're doing this now in, you know, the fall of 2020. We don't have a vaccine. We're just realizing you don't necessarily die if you step outside of your house without a mask on. I mean, the world's the, the level of volatility and certain uncertainty oh, about well, the future yeah. is, is it was incredible at this moment. And so the thought of, of getting, this much debt on our, our balance sheet for another 100 200,000 in ebitda with another practice that we'd have to manage with all of these these improvements that need to be made is the the original plan just didn't make sense any longer
2: yeah so what did you do
0: we our, our original three practices took off uh somebody poured gasoline on them and these things started growing 30, 40, 70% year over year. We were creating so much EVITA at those three locations, and we had so much work to do at those three locations, we just simplified the model and said, and and based on everything we were seeing, I mean we were participating on these deals where the you know the multiples that those mid teen multiples that we wanted to exit at were being handed to practices uh, one tenth the size of our business already, so we were. Why even you know why add more to the model when we were already getting the arbitrage we wanted? Was a, was our rationale at that point?
2: Makes sense. I want to get into what drove the growth. Before I do that, though, I I need to understand something. So, your parents and their family friend had the businesses on the market and were getting offers of around ten million. So, like, why were they getting hosed here relative to like this tiny little example you gave me of 1.2 million of revenue seems like a very small, crappy business relative to your parents' business, yet it was getting a much higher multiple. So why were your parents getting such a low multiple when they tried to sell their business before you got involved?
0: That is truly how quickly the market changed. It's just speed, okay. Yeah, when I left to start Old Brown Dog, you know, we were paying anywhere from five to eight times EBITDA for a solid suburban veterinary practice mm. with with four hundred to eight hundred thousand in EBITDA. By the first, by the end of the first year of Old Brown Dog, those prices that that story of that small practice that was true, that was commonplace. I mean, wow. it, it, it just changed that quick.
2: Isn't that interesting? I, I mean, I know low interest rates. Were were the, the the sort of jet fuel that that made this whole House of Cards, if I can use that expression, work. But 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 we've had low interest rates for years, right? And and now obviously these economic models are changing because interest rates going up. And but I, I find it fascinating that it moved so quickly in such a short amount of time. Um, but that's neither here nor there because it did and and at the same time you grew profitability tremendously so um what is it that drove your profitability growth like what is, can, can you give us some actionable things that you did really granular if you can to sure. make the business more profitable in your hands than it was in your parents hands for example
0: and i just want to clarify my mother was my coo so as far as business you know who was truly operating these businesses it remained You know, by and large, my parents, with me included, you know, helping them make decisions strategically about do we overinvest in labor, that kind of stuff. And we can certainly get into some specifics. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an underlying dynamic that we capitalized on. The pandemic was excruciatingly painful to operate through. Sure. You know, whether it was safe to come to work changed on a weekly basis. What was safe to do changed on a weekly basis. The, you know, the 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 payroll regulations around if you work twenty seven hours, you qualify for partial, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Everything was changing so quickly. We operated in markets where most of our major uh, local competitors, the veterinary hospitals we were competing with, were locally owned. The lead veterinarian was also the owner of the business. In between keeping up with His appointment schedule, her appointment schedule and recruiting more people. There just wasn't time to do it all. Mm -hmm. And that was the, that, that dynamic was so important to our success because what happened was is these places had to close their doors to new clients. They just, they couldn't support the growth that was occurring. We were in communities north of Boston that were seeing pretty big, um, growth from people coming out of the city into these suburban areas. Oh, right, because
2: everybody left the big cities and moved Right, in, right? Everybody wanted a dog because everybody was lonely during the pandemic, right? right. And then everybody moved to the country because... They don't want to be in the city and they could because everybody could work from home so you have this influx of population at the same time the smaller competitors are struggling is that
0: that's right yeah so we, we're getting tons of new animals into these markets those animals need to go to a veterinarian a lot of our competitors just didn't have the managerial support to to meet that need sure yeah and so we we you know I'm not here to say that I saw this all coming. I don't I didn't see any of this coming. I frankly had left my job and needed something to do. I, I needed a job. So that's why, you know, that's why we plowed ahead when we did at the beginning of the pandemic. But it turned out to be perfect timing that we had set up this management structure. We'd hired a director of operations, you know, we'd brought on professional managers and we got them up and running so that we had all of this additional management support. We had, you know, We had a director of operations who oversaw the three managers who sat in each practice. None of these practices had had managers prior. They were just owned and operated by the primary veterinarian. The primary veterinarian made all of the management decisions. They shopped for health insurance when they had time, and they saw appointments when they had time. And you can imagine that it just... Nothing against this model. It was the way everything had been done, but you just didn't have time to do anything well. You just had to do it. You just had to pick out health insurance and move on, whether it was the cheapest or... you know most optimized. So we brought in these managers. They had time to recruit people while we saw appointments. They had time to shop out health insurance. Our director of operations, her name was Jess Molina. She was the practice manager of the year in the whole country. Uh, She had been doing this as a career. She knew how to get the best deals at our vendors from the very get-go. There was no trial by fire there. She just knew who to talk to, what to say, and we got the best deals.
2: But all all these people, Joe, would, would would be costly. So... As much as like I get running a more professional practice, they're eating into your EBITDA by hiring a director of operations. That's not an expensive payroll. So like did you take a hit short term on EBITDA to, to sort of professionalize? Do you know what I'm getting at?
0: Yeah, that? absolutely. I mean, this is such a good question because I think this is this is one of the strategies that it brought to the table that I think elevated us and and really put our multiples where where it ended up being. Um I knew having sat on the buy side of a lot of these deals, I knew how these, these companies would view certain decisions, even if they ate into EBITDA. Bringing on things like bringing on managers, you could tell a very compelling story for why that is a, you would get adjustments to your profit and loss statement at the time of the transaction to say, Hey, you know, we're reducing key man risk. If the lead veterinarian that you're buying this practice from, um, checks out or, or gets so much money that they just don't care anymore. You don't have to worry about them not managing the way they did any longer. You now have a manager in place who's a professional manager, who's salaried, who will continue to make sure that things work the, the way they are. And as soon as you do that, you see a higher multiple that offsets that cost. I mean, again, you're de-risking these businesses. And so what I, the message I came to my parents with was, we got to reduce key man risk at these businesses, and we got to put professional management in place. The buyers of these, the larger buyers in this space are going to love to see that you're going to get the, the multiple that you're going to get on your deal is going to go up enough to offset the, the EBITDA you might lose. And frankly, the market's getting so competitive that they're going to back out some of that salary and give you credit for it. So we were able to, so for example, our director of operations, she sat above the managers. Her salary was, let's, I don't quite remember what it was. Let's call it $100,000. That was $100,000 to our cash flow statement that, that was a hit. We weren't seeing that cash flow. We weren't making that money in the short run. However, when it went, when we went to market, what we told, the story we told was, Hey, you guys want to set up a division in New England? We've got your director. We've got your regional director already in place, already managing on, you know, on a smaller scale, but multiple hospitals. All you need to do is, is scale it up to 20, 30 practices and that that $100,000 director of operations salary goes from being your expense at the obd level to a corporate expense of whoever acquires you. Yeah. And they'll add it back out and you, so there's $100,000 of ebitda created even though we got to leverage that labor the whole time.
2: Got it. So you're saying those that could be an adjustment in an aggressive sort of adjustment schedule saying this is not an expense that you'll necessarily should apply against the business. I want to get to adjustments when we get to the actual sure. uh, sale of Old Brown talk. But before we do, I'm, I'm I'm curious about the dynamic of of bringing in professional management and the legacy founders. Here's what I've experienced: founders have a very specific sort of way they want to run their company. And it's part logical, but it's also part emotional. Like, it's like, yeah, I know it doesn't really make sense to give everybody their birthday off, and it's a bit expensive, but that's just part of our culture. Or, yeah, I know we should raise our prices, but, you know, like I've known Tim, the low, you know lumberyard manager, since 86, we went to high school together. I don't really feel like we should raise his price. And then all of a sudden you bring in professional managers and people who are sort of more mercenary. And there creates an enor- enormous amount of friction between the founders who have sort of idiosyncrasies, ways they like running their business that maybe not the most profitable, but they work for them. And the professional managers is like, that makes no sense to give everybody their birthday off. You already have three weeks vacation. Why do you need the three weeks in a day? Or why are you giving these guys a discount? What was the friction for you? What did your mom and dad push back against and say, Joe? I appreciate you went to the fancy school. You did all the, you know, you went to the fancy private equity group, but that's just not the way we run our business, Joe. Like, did you get that sort of friction or pushback?
0: You know, it's funny. I, tell I me hadn't, the truth. Because I know. I believe there
2: was something.
0: So, so I, I haven't considered this question before. So this answer is, you know, it's not something I think about very often. But I won't tell your mom. Uh, the funniest thing is that I honestly was the one who pushed for more idiosyncratic policies to remain, um, to kind of preserve again, cause I, I kind of knew what would and wouldn't matter to these buyers. I knew that having excess holidays was not something we really looked at on the buy side. I knew that having professional management in place was a huge deal. And so I could come into this with that balanced perspective to say, yeah, you know, that bizarre, I think the area that we really the, the really specifically was around discounting for employee uh, veterinary services. So the, the how much money our employees pay for veterinary services.
2: We're about to get into the gory details of the transaction itself. Before we go there, I want to share with you a resource we put together for you that you might find interesting. It's called The Definitive Guide to Creating Standard Operating Procedures. Look, here's the deal. If you want to create a business that can thrive without you, a so-called self-managing business, your employees need to know how to do their jobs when you're not around. And we have to take what's in your head and get it down for them to actually know how to do the job that you would do if you were in their shoes. This comes down to standard operating procedures. And we just developed a guide. It talks about how to create them, some of the tips and tricks, mistakes to avoid in creating standard operating procedures. It's free. All you have to do is go to -to builttosell.com slash S-O-P. Now, back to the show. So let's get into the sale. What triggered, because you had this vision, hey, we're going to buy a bunch of practices, we're going to roll them up, use a bunch of debt, and everything's too expensive, but then your own three practices are like going like stink. You're making a ton of money. What triggered you to want to
0: sell? The labor market started to get just un- unworkable. Um, we were seeing a we were seeing quarter million dollar signing bonuses with you know five-year clawback type clauses. We were... For vets. For vets. Yeah. And, and for support staff too. Um, veterinary technicians, which is our equivalent of a nurse, um, very qualified, highly skilled individuals that are not common. Um, and the, the labor market just became all of these, all of these larger investment groups, these, these larger platforms had recently raised, you know, three to $800 million. And at the time when you were going to market, whether you were a platform our size or you had 200 practices, what was happening was is if you could hire a veterinarian you were getting credit for their revenue at maturation meaning when you hire a veterinarian it takes them months and months and months of working within the practice to really kind of get up to speed and start generating the the levels of revenue that they will when they've been there for 5 years true sure. Well, what was happening was you could hire a veterinarian. You could hire five veterinarians. You could pay them each a quarter of a million dollars to come on board. And then when you went to market, you could say, well, we just brought five veterinarians on board. They're only doing, you know, uh, annualized run rate of 400,000 in revenue, but at maturation, that'll be 900,000 per doctor. You know, we wanted, we want that adjusted into our revenue and they'd get it. So wow. you could pay a quarter of a million because it was bringing 3 million in, enter- in enterprise value to have them signed on. And and That's it great. was, I mean, it was becoming, it was absurd. I mean, and like I said, we were growing 30, 40, 50% year over year. We needed to hire people, but yeah. we didn't have that kind of money to compete. And what we saw what is that we were... Do? What? So what did you do? We... Uh, I told the team, I said, I was like, guys, I am going to start to reach out to some of my connections in the industry, some of these buyers. We are going to get NDAs signed. I am going to start flying around, talking to everybody, and we're going to the market. Um, I went into QuickBooks. I printed off all of our P&Ls, our balance sheets. I sent them out and I actually went and adjusted them first too. I made sure that we had our own adjustments uh, and that we weren't letting them shape the narrative. Um, and about a month into that, I realized, oh my God, this, I'm working full-time as a veterinarian at this point, trying to support these practices. I'm still operating these three hospitals. And now I'm about to run a process on this, these three. I don't have enough time. Um, and we brought in a couple of our advisors. We brought in uh, Cyrus Abassi. He was with uh, Proskauer at that time. He was a M&A attorney who had done a lot of the larger veterinary platforms. And he himself uh, had a special place in his heart for family-owned businesses because his father was a... Uh, an MD who had a, a gastroenterology practice. Interesting. And uh, in
2: Cyrus, who else?
0: We brought in Cyrus, we brought in um he he referred us to a small M&A advisory firm, QS Capital Partners in Nashville. It was a one-man shop at the time when we when we brought them on. They were uh, uh Joseph Shields, the the founder over there was He'd come from KKR. He'd been buying human healthcare facilities for KKR and then opened up an M and a sell side advisory firm. Um, and we were his second client. Oh. The only reason we, we decided to work with him is because he was charging 3% advi- um, of transaction versus what was kind of industry standard at the time of 6% in the veterinary field. And we, we needed somebody to manage our, uh, our process for us. And so, you know, he, he pushed us to do some things we weren't comfortable doing. Okay. I, and again, I was so skeptical of of brokers at that time when I was... Not that he was really a broker, but when I was on the buy side, what I saw brokers doing was charging 6% of transaction to set up a data room um, and, and organizing the files, but really not bringing much additional value to the the process because of how competitive the market was. All of these firms were just doing the adjustments themselves, and and these sellers were getting credit for adjustments that they weren't even aware of. And so, as long as you could, as long as you knew who the big players were, and I did, I felt like as long as I brought them all to the table and made sure they all knew that they were sitting at the table with each other, that they would go and they knew they had to be aggressive to win this deal. I wasn't.
2: Before before we go for that, I want to ask you, you mentioned Joseph pushed you to do some things that you weren't comfortable doing. What, what, what were those things?
0: The first thing he did is he took us off the market. He he basically cut lines of contact with any of the groups we had already reached out to, um, pulled in all of our financials, kept everything under lock until we had as consistent a narrative as we possibly could get. We went and did an $85,000 Q of E, a quality of earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, where for
2: folks who don't know what a Q of E is. Just explain that.
0: Yeah. We we um retained uh it was fti consulting we retained an accounting firm to essentially um go through all of our financials for the last 3 years verify that they're accurate make adjustments as needed you know maybe we we uh, very common thing in veterinary medicine is to um expense inventory as soon as you get it in the hospital and not put it on the balance sheet and so really easy way to destroy your EBITDA is to expense it as soon sure. as you get it and not toss it on the balance sheet and wait until you've sold it. So they'd go through and they'd untangle all of that. You know, they, they'd make sure all the financials were clean. Um, and then they put their stamp on it so that when you brought it out to, uh, potential acquirers, there was this extra level of credibility around these numbers are clean. These are the numbers you're going to use to, Make your valuations off, off of we know what we're worth essentially, which is really important because it depends on how clean you run your financials and how you know intimately you you know your operations. But it's impressive how much slop can occur even when you're paying attention. And so you know hundreds, especially when the multiples are in the teens or in the twenties, you know hundred thousand dollars is meaningful. One hundred percent, right? So, yeah. so their their job was to go through, clean everything up, put put their stamp on it, make it credible and reliable so that you didn't waste time at the beginning of the process arguing over what is and isn't credible with potential acquirers.
2: Okay. So Joseph, you know, cut the lines of communication, tidied up the books, got the QV done, and sort of decided to run a process, uh, you know, formal process. Before we get into that, you've mentioned adjustments a couple of times. For folks who don't know what that means, can you define what you mean when you say EBITDA adjustment?
0: Sure. So, so, you know, EBITDA is, and again, I am a farmer with a degree in veterinary medicine. So this is, this is all learned on the job. I've never taken a finance course in my life. Um, do not hold me to these definitions, but, you know, EBITDA is kind of the, the metric right now being used to determine the earnings of a business, they back out interest, they back out taxes, depreciation, amortization. It it kind of is a, is a standardized clean way of looking at how much money a business makes without considering, you know, did they go out and get a bunch of junky debt that has really high interest that we can do better on. Right. And then what happens is you get these adjustments to EBITDA. And these adjustments are, Ways that the business in theory could be improved that maybe haven't been implemented yet, but we're going to give you credit for. So one example would be that doctor example they've just hired a new doctor that doctor's only been there for two months. they're not doing very much in revenue. they haven't really hit the the bottom line yet. but in eight months, based on the historics of this business, we see that this doctor will be doing eight hundred thousand revenue a year and that's going to drop. $200,000 to EBITDA in eight months. And by the time this process is over, we will probably be there. So we'll go ahead and credit you with $200,000 in adjusted EBITDA in addition to the EBITDA you already have. Because by the time we acquire this business, that's probably where it's going to be.
2: And just to add on to your definition, uh, which is great, uh, you know, there'd be expenses that you might incur, one-time expenses that wouldn't right. be normal ongoing expenses. Like For example, the the, the purchase of the quality of earnings consulting $80,000 was a one-time expense associated with the sale of your company. You would, you would, you would extract that or pull it out of your expenses thereby increasing your EBIT by 80 grand. That would be a classic adjustment of like pulling out any weird one-time expenses that associated with the sale or that just you wouldn't, that, a, that an acquiring company would not have to incur. So that's the other, uh, adjustment for folks listening who may may need to understand that that term okay so super good i get it joseph runs a professional process you know all the folks from your time at rare breed what's the reaction like what, what did you get a bunch of offers or what did you get
0: we had um i think we had 25 companies sign ndas to get a look at our sim uh our conf- confidential or company information memorandum again i'm not the banker here. So
2: yeah. Confidential information. Yeah. Basically the description of your business with all the financials and so forth.
0: Yeah. That's right. So we had some, you know, mid twenties, uh, people sign NDAs and get our data. The plan was to narrow it down to the eight most interested and then get from those eight most interested, get three that were the most interested and get those three in, um, kind of at, at a table and, uh, you know, go from there. So we pretty quickly got the people out of the process who weren't that interested, We got to eight. We, we, we took LOIs from eight companies. We took the top three LOIs. We told everybody kind of where they stood, relatively speaking. We took the top three LOIs as far as deal value. And we, that's where we really started to run. We pretty quickly got down to the three best. Just narrow the field. Don't, don't worry about the guys who aren't going to get there. Um, you got people who are, who are, What was, what was happening in the market was there were a lot of groups that were close to raising or had just raised. Mm. And so groups that are close to raising are really incentivized to get deals in their pipeline, get LOI signed. Cause again, they're going to go to these investment firms. They're going to say, we've already got this many deals under LOI. You know, give us a higher pre money valuation. Give us credit. This is truly what's happening. You know, give us credit for these deals we haven't closed yet. Because we have a 97% success rate of closing deals we get under LOI. So they're nearly a sure thing. So they wanted to get things under LOI if they're close to raising. And groups that had just raised have a bunch of money they need to deploy and are flush with cash and just competing for businesses and needing to execute on what they said they were going to do. And so we hit the market you know, kind of perfect for that where a couple of groups were getting ready to raise or had just raised. And so we got the the 3 most interested groups at the table. Um Told them relatively, you know, not exactly where they stood, but said, you know, guys, we're, we're going to do this one time, one time only. You know, you need to come to us with best and final offers. Lots, lots along the way here, though, as far as, um, I don't know how much you want me to get into the details of a lot. Yeah. I was going to say that I skipped over a lot to get to this point. Um, but that was the general approach was to, to quickly narrow down the field, um, from 22 to three, because when, when the process is that big and you got five, even five people at a table, it's just too many. There's too many options, and you got to get the people who um, are most interested. The disparity of offers that we got were our, our lowest offer was about one half of what our highest initial first offer came in at. So, the guys were giving you the you know one half of what the top of the range is. You just gotta you gotta throw them aside and, and kind of move on.
2: And so when you're when you're in the round of eight, we'll call it yeah. like basketball in March. When we're in the round of eight. Like what, what's the kind of low-end multiple of EBITDA and what would be the higher-end? Like just ranges if you could.
0: Sure. So, so you know, frankly, the multiples, the range was was pretty tight. Everybody was using kind of high teens, anywhere from, um, I think our lowest multiple was like 17 and I think our highest was 19. What really changed was the aggressiveness of the adjustments and how much EBITDA they were willing to recognize. Uh, um, that that was where, Because everybody knew, I mean... It's not it's not a it's not a public market but at this point in time the the veterinary practice transaction space is very liquid and v- there's a lot of transparency around there's just a lot of transactions happening everybody kind of knows what the multiple is they know that the, you know if they're not competitive on the multiple they're not going to get the deal so they all kind of hit the multiple but then it comes down to you know how aggressive of an adjustment are they willing to do
2: What was your reaction just You, Joe, I'm looking for just a personal sort of observation here. You know, at this round of LOIs, when you're talking, you know, 17 to 19 times EBITDA with some aggressive adjustments, like you personally have practically doubled the value of your parents' business. So you've locked in the 10 million that they were getting offered two years before. And now you're you're looking at offers that would effectively double that, if not more. Like what's, like, did you have a moment of realization say at this stage and said like, like, what was your reaction to that?
0: To be totally honest with you, when the largest LOI came in, I vomited. Uh, really? Yeah, it was, I was nauseous. I mean, cause you know, in, in my world I had gone from being a, a broke college student to a broke recent grad to a you know, startup founder in the middle of a pandemic who was racing around with his head cut off, trying to you know, just continue to recruit, continue to grow, you know execute on all these plans as fast as possible, um, to starting a process, uh, to, to flying around, meeting investment firms, to a paper showing up one day in your email that has a number on it that makes you that you never thought you'd see in your life, but also kind of validates what you set out to do from the very beginning, what you said was possible that you didn't know was possible until it, you know, somebody it, it means, you know, a business is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for. It, and I can sit down and build any Excel model that shows any rosy scenario I want. But to go through all this work and then to finally get this piece of paper that kind of validated all of this planning and all of this theory, um, it, it was overwhelming.
2: Wow. That's the first time I've heard anyone puking. On
0: the, on <laughs> and I, and I, I had come off of a particularly long day where I hadn't eaten a lot. And uh, okay. it was just, yeah.
2: <laughs> okay. So, so you're at the round of eight. You're like, guys, these three are the, are the, are the ones who are most, obviously most willing to work with us and offering the best because, of, again, they're multiple, but also the aggressiveness of the, the adjustments they're willing to do. So then you said to them, best and final. Like come back to us with, if you want this business, what, what's your final offer is? What was the, the reaction to the three parties from there? Did they lift their offers at all? Or do they say you've already got our best?
0: So the, yeah. So some of the offers came up substantially. Um, this, the spread between the lowest and the, the highest offer of those three was probably still, I think it was like 7 million ish. So there, there was still some room, um, The, the highest offer stayed put. They improved some of the, uh, qualitative aspects of it around, you know, non-compete ranges, length of time, um, made some specific commitments to do capex investment post acquisition, um, which, you know, we can talk a little bit about building theirs because there there was, like I said, we skipped over a lot to get to this part of the, the, the story here. Um, but the, the groups, on the on the lower end, what they did is they went back to the QOV, they went back to the sim, they looked at a lot of the um, adjustments. So we had proposed we had proposed uh, something like three million dollars in adjustments of ways to improve this business. Because when we came to market, one of the things we really wanted to do is we wanted to come with a compelling narrative. Uh, you, it, so many of the people on this this podcast have said it, but it, it's totally true. You don't want to come when your business is is uh, flatlining. Mm-hmm. You don't want to wait for the growth to start slowing down. You want to come to the market with a compelling reason why somebody would want to buy you. Because nobody, nobody's compelled to say, well, we did everything we could. This business is maxed out. It's not going to get bigger. Um, everything else is going to be really hard. You want to come to the market when you have something, something that could grow the business, but you have a good reason why you can't do it yourself. And what
2: was that in your case?
0: So for us, it was partially the recruiting part of it, right? Recruiting became really expensive and we couldn't, we couldn't afford it and we needed it. We were, did you tell
2: the acquires that?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we told them, you know, Hey, these hospitals are growing like crazy. We've got tremendous reputations within our market. People know us to be the place to come. Yeah, when you get you're your pet. are starting
2: with the metrics because you and the five other firms that have raised $800 million are going around offering quarter million dollar signing bonuses. Right. And like We can't compete with that. We That's can't the, compete with that. that. that was, uh, you said that. Got yeah. it.
0: The, the yeah. Okay. Other, the other aspect we had was that these, again, uh, natural part of growth is that you're going to expand outside of the facilities that you have eventually, especially when you're going 50, 60% per year. I mean, it is Really painful to grow yeah, that fast. Yeah, physical. Yeah, sure. yeah. So we also had a lot of capex investment needed to be done in the facilities we were in. Again, we're talking two, three, four, five million dollars in investment that we didn't have and weren't really interested on in taking debt on to do. Um, and okay. so our, our story to them was, Hey, we've got a ton of runway for growth, but it needs money to fuel it. We need to recruit and we need to build. And those are two things that a larger partner with a, a larger balance sheet would be better uh, equipped to do than we were.
2: What did the final offers come in at? The three best and final, like where, where were they roughly speaking on a multiple? Hibita?
0: They they were very close. Um, the you know the, the the spread was probably less than a million dollars between between them. As far as we you were able to share
2: more, like. What the multiple was, or what the what the dollar figure was, or anything to give people a sense. They were yeah. at seventeen to nineteen, like after the round of eight. So I'm assuming they improved a little bit over that.
0: Yeah. So so we were at we were at about 28 times a lightly adjusted EBITDA that include pulling out you know realistic one time expenses, um, and 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 things that wouldn't continue on a going forward basis. That didn't really include. Some of the more aggressive adjustments.
2: Okay. Yeah. So lightly adjusted, but still, I mean, you you started at ten when you originally started Old Brown Dog, and and now we're talking twenty eight. I mean, this is this is unbelievable value creation.
0: Yeah. It it was really due to the 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 I mean, we we just hyper fixated on creating a compelling narrative in a. It it wasn't a. We didn't want to, we always talked about having responsible and sustainable changes. We didn't want to just pretty up the company in ways that would fall apart as soon as it sold. I mean, that just wasn't going to, wasn't going to stick with anybody. Any sophisticated buyer would see through that. It really came down to, like I said, reducing key man risk, implementing management, um, and, and, and recruiting heavily and out competing our local markets. The The narrative was that compelling that we were able to get
2: got people. it now I'm assuming that y- you so you agreed on a price a value uh, and was was it a, a most of these private equity deals when you sell are similar where you you sell a portion of your equity and then you effectively roll uh, some of your equity into another entity ie uh, the acquirer. Did you roll some equity or what was your the structure of the the kind of the deal?
0: Sure. I mean I don't know if, if um this might be an opportunity to kind of discuss a lot of the different structures we were offered because there's a lot of different ways to accomplish a lot yeah, of different yeah. mechanisms to accomplish what you just described. And it was it was kind of an interesting uh component of the, the three final offers. So mm-hmm. so we were getting predominantly cash offers um where the majority of the deal would be paid in cash directly to the founders, but there was, you know it was typically between um, 10 and, and 30% of enterprise value would would be issued, paid for in some sort of equity product. Uh, now, there were a lot of different ways that was accomplished. Um, there was just kind of the simplest of, of terms was just equity in the new enterprise. You, know, you, you received the same rights as uh, any other shareholder, as the, the P firm that backed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to look out for things like, uh, tag along rights, non, um, anti dilution protections, that kind of stuff. That's kind of the most standard, simplest. There's no tricky mechanisms underneath. It's just how you, you know, you, you now own equal value in a larger company. Mm-hmm. There was a equity package that was structured similarly, except half of the equity was what I just described. It was kind of the standard the standard fair, but the other half was more of a debt product where it would appreciate in value at eight percent per year um, regardless of whether the company's value went up eight percent i don't I, again i'm not the lawyer here i don't quite know how they accomplished that um, from a technical standpoint, but it was interesting that it was equity but it had a half component that was fully participatory and half that had a fixed rate so so the the paying kind note it, it functions more like a debt product where um, and again, don't ask me how the mechanism works on paper. That's for the bankers and the, the attorneys to figure out. But you, you don't participate in the growth of the company. If it goes up, it goes up. If it goes down, it goes down. You get a you get a fixed rate, you know, ten percent um, paid to you in kind. And so my understanding is that you know we'd get x let's call it ten million dollars of equity in this new enterprise, and it would appreciate at ten percent per year. Now, you have to be careful with that. If there's no sort of uh, put option where you have the opportunity to sell, you may just hold it into perpetuity until they decide to buy it from you. You, you got to make sure you build in the right protections to all of these mechanisms for yourself because liquidity, although the last couple of years have made it feel not too difficult to accomplish, liquidity in the private market is very, very difficult to get. Um, so you need to build in and it, it, it's really easy when people are waving eight figures in front of you to say, "Oh gosh, I trust you." You know, well, we won't worry about it. But you got to get in writing how you're going to get out of those those various yeah, so what did you instruments. Do
2: in, in your case, like I'm assuming you took some equity in one of these forms. I don't know how much you can share about that. I'm, I'm sensing that you have to be a bit careful there. But if you can share how you insured you could effectively sell that equity or at least not get it diluted downstream because i guess the, because the other piece of this is is you know the, the value that you're getting has inflated tremendously 28 times EBITDA which is great but if you're just rolling a ton of that equity into an, an entity that is equally inflated when the bubble bursts like your equity that you rolled has the potential to drop in value dramatically as well so number one right. obviously you're trying to get as much of your cash up front and number two you've got to I'm assuming you have some sort of protection against that downside that that equity uh, could be at least sold like how did you how did you do that
0: yeah so we ultimately chose to go with just the the standard fully participatory equity we had to um, clarify and make sure tag-along rights existed. They, what is a it was, tag-along you know, right? So a tag-along right, this this is important. Um, you own equity. You're a minority shareholder in a large entity with maybe a, a P firm backing, some sort of investment firm backing it. Uh, market gets a little bit troubled. PE firm wants to get out, but the new buyer says, well, we don't want all these, the operators who hold, you know, minority positions in this company to sell and be totally skin out of the game and not care how we perform. You know, we want them to stay on. And so the PE firm says, oh, that's fine. We'll just sell you our shares and they can all hold theirs. They, they have no tag along rights. They can't tag along with us if we go to sell our shares. So a tag along right protect protects you that if, a, a liquidity event occurs you have the right to tag along and participate in it and sell your shares got too
2: it, got it. that's beautiful. Yeah. i've ne- i've heard that term a thousand times i've never understood it now i get it in great clarity thank you
0: yeah it, it it's there to protect the people like me you know um owner operators shareholders who are important to the success of the business you know to the new acquirer that you know that we don't get pigeonholed and say, well, you got to hold on to your shares because we want you to continue to have skin in the yeah, game. Yeah,
2: that makes sense. So you you yeah. had you had tag along rights. You did. You decided to go fully participating, meaning you you are at the mercy, effectively, of the majority shareholder. When they decide to sell, then you will effectively get the same terms they get.
0: That's right. We we go up when the company goes up. We go down when the company goes down. It it was it has the least. With all those other structures, there are so many ways that it starts to misalign um, incentives. Yeah. Where you know, there's just too many ways to play with it. Not that any of those are wrong, and, and for in certain circumstances, I think they make a lot of sense for certain people and for certain situations. I've certainly used seller financing. I've certainly you know used other structures of equity. I, you know, to start OBD, I had to use a, a special structure of equity to get it done. Um, but we just wanted something simple where we were all. Yeah, makes sense. Grown in the same direction.
2: And how is the acquirer's is the is the acquirer public? Like, are you able to see what the value of the acquirer has done over the last six months with the the the, uh, turbulence in the uh, stock market?
0: Nope. so uh, still privately held. Um, Sometimes you can get a little bit of information. This is one of the fun things about uh, you know doing these processes is that you're giving entire transparency into your business. They know everything they've got. You know, they've talked to all of you. They've seen all your financials. You've got every receipt and then you're going to be accepting equity from them. And when you ask them, how did you come to the value of your company? They're just going to say, trust us, which is, it's just, it's the way it works. Um, You have no ability to do due due diligence. And so they can come up with any value they want. Now when you really dig into it, there's incentives for them not to overinflate the value of their company and there's incentives for them to not undervalue their company, uh, w- which, you know, for example, um, if they undervalue their company, there's clauses within all these shareholders that say, you know, if, if you choose to leave um, for and, and you get let go for bad behavior or something of like that, I can't, I don't know what they say exactly, but due to certain events, you get let go. We have to buy your your shares back from you at, the value that we've stated. So if they, if they overinflate and that happens, Mm. then they're paying way too much for their own equity. Um, And if they, similarly, there's, there's mechanisms that make it not worth worth it to them to undervalue. If they undervalue their shares, then they're having to give more shares away when they go to buy other practices than they should. And then they're getting more diluted than they should. So there are natural mechanisms built in to kind of protect against uh, share price manipulation, but it is a private market. You got to kind of rely on them to to tell you what it's worth. And but it, they, it's the same shares that the founders hold. It's the same shares that the PE firms hold. So everybody is again aligned in that sense, where it's you know you're all operating off the same.
2: What did you do when this deal
0: closed that night? Yeah. I bought a hundred and twenty dollar bottle of champagne. It was probably some of the worst champagne I've had. It was it was old, it was it was prestigious, uh, but it had kind of like a, a sulfury um, mushroom flavor to it. And and I, 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 to this day, I don't know if that's what was supposed to happen, and that's just what happens when champagne ages. I've never had you know champagne that old uh but that's that's truly what we did i mean i was in shock to be totally honest with you there's there's a period of time after these deals close one you you there's still work to do right sure. there's all of the transitions you you, you want to be a good partner you want to make a good first impression so you want to stay focused on that but also your reality has just changed dramatically the so much about your world both economically professionally um personally has just it, it's, it's kind of a traumatic event not in a Scary or bad way, but it just changes yeah, yeah, so for sure. I, much.
2: I'm, I'm really curious about this. So, how? When was the deal? When did it close?
0: We closed December 30th, uh, 2021. We had about four or five business hours left in the year wow. uh, before the deal would would carry over into uh, a new tax year. So we're ten, and, we're ten
2: months in, effectively. It's recording it, uh, this October 2020. Yeah, yeah, nine, yeah, 10 months in. In those nine months, how has your relationship with your mom and dad changed?
0: It's a good question. Um, In a lot of ways, it has become, it's settled a little bit. We have a little bit less on the line. There's a little bit, you know, financially, our lives aren't quite as volatile as they were and the decisions we're making aren't quite as impactful to that. Uh, so you're not constantly thinking about the bottom line and everything. Um, there's a lot of maturing of our relationship at this point. There's a lot of trust that we've built over those years having, again, uh, you know, this is kind of morbid, but when we started the company, I, it was it was May of 2020 when we when we set up the LLC. and again, it was the period of time where stepping outside your house, the narrative was was you you might get COVID and pass away
2: yeah like washing your um, vegetables and, and the whole thing remember, yeah
0: yeah you know you touch a doorknob yeah, yeah. and you and you don't wash your hands that that could be it uh and so in in the back of my mind i had a i had to consider what would happen if my parents passed away mm-hmm. in the very beginning of all of this and so um you really get this looking back and you start to think about those stories and where you started and, and what you know, and just all of the crazy stuff that you were having to go through and just, in some cases, ignore, um, plan for, I have a real sense of appreciation for how much we accomplished and how much we got done and, and, and how proud I am of these guys for working with me. Because I can tell you right now, um, I am not a refined professional. Uh, I'm, I'm a little erratic. I'm, a little, I'm very emotional, uh, I'm animated, I can get mad, I can, you know, get frustrated. And, and they were so patient with me along the way. And um, it, to have it all come together in this way, just felt, it, it's very fulfilling. I, I just felt like we got, we were met with so many challenges along the way. And, and every time they came up, we, even if we disagreed about solutions or we saw you know, saw the issue differently and wanted to go in different directions, we worked through it we never gave up we we continued to solve it. and we frankly if looking back it felt like we never missed a beat now we got our butts kicked uh, you know day in and day out but on the big high level things that we were hoping to execute on you know on growing the company on on reducing key man risk on
2: that stuff you know
0: providing exceptional veterinary care i mean it was just
2: i was kind of more interested joe in in the in the family dynamic i'll tell you why i've got a friend sure. who who bought her dad's business over 10 years or 15 years. I can't remember the length of time. It was a long, long time. It was a little bit of, a year. And she bought it uh, when the business was quite small and unsophisticated. And she grew it really, really well, like really made some great changes, and, and it became quite a quite a valuable company. And I think... I I think I'm not really paraphrasing too much to say or reading it to it too much to say that it made the relationship she had with her dad complicated. On one hand, I think he was enormously proud of her and you know what she had done. There's a little bit of him also that felt maybe a touch resentful like Maybe he sold to her under too favorable terms, or gave her a, a, a sweetheart deal, and, and that like there was a little bit of a, it, it added a level of, of challenge to their relationship that I don't know would have been there had she gone off and got a, got a job at McKinsey or worked at you know Procter and Gamble or whatever. I, and I guess I'm curious for you: Did you feel you you said your relationship with your parents? matured, I'm wondering if there was any resentment on either side that, because you could also look at it the other way and say, like, look at all the value you created. And some people would say, like, you should have gotten the lion's share of the increase or more of the money. Do, do you know what I'm asking? Like, I'm, I'm totally. curious about the, the fi- family dynamics that existed.
0: It was, it was tough, you know, frankly, there were, um, I'm young. And uh, they've been doing this for 30 years. They, they know what's worked for them. And here I am coming in with all these new ideas and saying, we got to try this. We got to do this. Uh, and seeing them work sometimes I think was tough for them. Just uh, to, to see some of these risks we took, having them work out. Uh, because it, things that I had advocated for that maybe they weren't in favor of. Now, that being said, um, they took they took a tremendous risk folding in essentially their uh, uh, retirement
2: life savings portfolio. Yeah. Their life
0: savings into a JV structure that I had proposed. Um And all along the way, I was really cognizant of that. It's tough. Let, let me put it that way. It, it's really hard for you to work with your parents. It's, it's, it's something that you don't want to, you have this, you have two relationships. You have a professional relationship to grow and you have a personal familial relationship to preserve. Um, and some, there were a lot of circumstances I can think of where I backed down from certain initiatives within the company in order to preserve a familial relationship. Um, you know, for, for example, my father and I, we just, we don't see eye to eye, um, practice wise and, and kind of management style wise. And so very often I would find myself just kind of not implementing many changes at the hospital. He was, he was, uh, at, you know, practicing at, and just kind of letting them, and they were doing fine. You know, they didn't, they didn't need my help. Um, they were growing just fine. There were things I would have changed, but I don't feel any resentment. And again, I think it was because we all participated on, you know, in the event value that I created, they participated participated in it as well. So from a financial standpoint, I don't think there was any resentment. I, I think from a leadership standpoint and who was seen as, you know, kind of having, they, they'd grown these businesses for 20 years, you know, all of this foundation that I was taking on and, and, and using as the platform to grow from, I wouldn't have been able to do if those 30 years weren't there. And so I was very cognizant of that from the beginning and, and made sure to speak about it with the team, made sure to speak about it with them so that we never lost sight of what it needed to, how we got here. You know, it was a ho- it's hockey stick growth. It was it was 20 years of slow, linear, steady growth, and then at a certain point, we figured out, you know, here's what we're going to do: throw fire on the flames, and it went like that. And it can be really easy to look at it go like that and say, oh well, those were all the right decisions. Obviously, you could have done that any time around here, but th- the truth was that this this slow, consistent growth needed to happen, and I was just really cognizant of that, and I was always. Respectful of, of how much time and, and and effort and and just struggle that they had to go through to get these practices to where they were, but it it did create rubs once in a while. Um, one of the bigger rubs, I think, was kind of overcoming the the nepotism part of the narrative here. Right, sure. the the employees who saw me coming in and figured I was getting favors done because my parents were the previous owners and you know if it hadn't been that way i wouldn't be in the seat that i was in and they're probably not wrong um i was able to get my foot in the door for that reason but nobody's going to put their retirement savings on the line for a half-assed plan for you know for a lazy preparation right you 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 had to still meet those th- those thresholds and, and prove that this was worth going forward with um but that was tough i there was there was a lot of resentment around nepotism, around age. Um, sure. I, I don't I don't blame anyone either. I, I get it.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. But to your credit, you were the one who brought the idea and the professionals and you had the experience and you, you made it happen. So let's do a lightning round. You, you could for a couple, sure. couple more minutes. We'll just do a quick couple of quick answers. Yeah. Uh, slimiest trick that one of those 25 acquirers tried to play to get your business for less than it was
0: worth. I had a guy call me. um, It was our intro call. He was asking me for some high-level numbers. I told him what they were. He offered me $27 million on the phone, said, take it or leave it. And uh, I I was very impressed with my response at the time. I was heart racing and, again, you know, Right. ready, ready to run to the toilet and vomit or whatever. Right. But I told him, I said, Hey, you know, we had just gotten done with our QV. So I had the, I had the language. I go, you know, we've done a lot of work around figuring out our value and we're excited to find out what this process shows. Um, unfortunately, I'm not able to make any commitments at this time, but I just remember thinking like, you know, that was such, uh, that would probably work on a lot of, uh, on a lot of business owners who just see a big number and uh, that's big enough, you know, but, uh, I'm glad we went to the process.
2: And so the slimy part of that was to try to usurp the, the the process you were going through, the competitive tension, and so forth.
0: We already had a banker. The banker had made it very clear to not talk about price with me, um, to talk purely operations, vision for growth, to keep that inf- you know to to not pressure me into selling or committing to an agreement um, it, it's seen as, yeah, it's, it's seen as kind of an underhanded tactic within the space. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That makes sense. Biggest mistake you made personally during the selling process.
0: We had about a month before close, we found out that our, our cap table was wrong. We had transferred shares to revocable trusts to uh charitable remainder trust. They, they were all still under the ownership of the, the partners but in various legal entities that were not our names any longer and we only found that out about a month before ours we were set to close uh, and that was chaos uh, I, I didn't know any better you know we had done this months ago and had I known that that was something we needed to go back and revisit um, I would have but yeah I had no idea and so so we find out that our cap I've been telling everybody the cap table was perfect from the very beginning and I you know didn't know any better but that was that was a huge mistake because that Caused a, a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, my attorney was telling me the deal might not close as a result of this. It may never be able to close, is what he told me, which made me horrified uh, that it was over transferring my shares from my name to my revocable trust. Uh, but yeah. That was a huge mistake. Yeah. Not, not updating the cap table ahead of time. was a huge mistake. Got it.
2: That's super helpful and, and may not have been caught in the quality of earnings. Cause that's not really something that you would look at in a of I, I don't believe. No. Interesting. So talk to your lawyer before you go, an M&A lawyer in particular, before you go sell your company. Great point. Um, highest moment emotionally you experienced during the sale of your company. <laughs>
0: I think it was when the, when the first set of LOIs came in and the numbers started to reflect the expectations when you started to say like I said that this is real that all of that planning and those models that I'd built and you know if we just get to this EBITDA and we get this multiple it'll be worth this much and it's like I know that number seems crazy but it's it's just math and I've seen it you know in other roles um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it didn't feel real until it was on paper and somebody was willing to commit to it. So that was probably the highest moment.
2: Excellent. Resources that you turn to, to educate yourself about the selling process. Now you'd, you'd lived it for a rare breed from the buyer's perspective, but were there any, any resources, again, conferences, speakers, things that you could point uh, our listeners too that help you kind of get educated about the the process of exiting.
0: So I, I had worked in it, um, and that was a big help for me. One of the things that I found was that most, despite the story I told recently about the guy on the phone offering that number, most acquirers are very helpful, um, and and it's to their benefit to educate you about the process because the deal goes smoother, it closes faster, there's less money spent on legal battles if you understand why you know, these terms exist, they're very willing to teach you about when, when I worked at Rareby, that was very, we were very genuine and very um, responsible about teaching owners. And we would refer them to, uh, uh, lawyers that we had worked with on this, that that had been lawyers for other sellers. Even though these guys were maybe tough, they knew the model, they knew the deals. It was done faster and time is money in these things. Uh, so there was a lot of being able to rely on the acquirer. Uh, was was helpful. They w- they really would. They wanted you to understand the equity terms. They wanted you to understand the mechanisms they were offering. It wasn't a trick. Uh, they wanted to have a long-term business relationship with you. And, and they all knew that lying to you up front was not the way to do that. So yeah. those guys ended up being a much better resource than you, you initially think because they sit across the table. You think that their their interests are misaligned and that they're going to mislead you. But really, it's it's surprising how much they want to help. That's super helpful.
2: Um, You bought the skunky bottle of champagne, but tell me there was some other trophy that you
0: bought yourself
2: to commemorate the win.
0: I bought a, I bought a uh, guitar. I bought a uh, Ibanez guitar. It's sitting right next to me. I'm looking at it right down there. Um, And uh, yeah.
2: What kind of brand is it? You said, you said the brand. I don't, I'm not a guitar guy.
0: It's an Ibanez prestige. So it's, it's uh, it's not a Fender. It's not a Gibson. It's it's kind of just this very technical brand that just builds beautiful guitars that work really well, but they don't necessarily charge you more because their brand is is historic. And I mean, Ivan is historic. It's not to say they're not, but um, I, I love this guitar. It's one of the nicest playing guitars I've ever had. And, can, and it makes any sounds you'd ever want it to make.
2: And you can remember this incredible deal while you're playing music yep. all night. That's awesome. I am so thrilled that you. Uh, have shared the story with us. I'm glad you got the guitar. I'm a big believer in physical commemoration. Uh, and after you ditch the skunky wine, or champagne, yeah. you have to have something, which is awesome. Joe, for folks who want to reach out, maybe say hi on social media, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Totally. Uh, LinkedIn is is certainly more professional. Uh, if you want to catch me more frequently, Instagram. I know it's 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 2022 now. So uh, you can catch me on Instagram as well.
1: Awesome. Just well, on
2: we'll my personal links accounts. In the show notes at built Joe, thanks for doing this.
0: Thank you so much, John. See ya.
1: And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between John and Joe Marchell. If you did enjoy today's episode, then I would highly encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. If you love today's episode, then share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly be impacted by today's podcast. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with the definitions for some of the more technical terms that were referenced in today's episode, go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at BuiltToSell.com. If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them by heading over to BuiltToSell.com slash nominate. There, you're going to have the opportunity to either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Some of the best episodes we've done, including today's guest, were nominations. So again, head over built to sell.com slash nominate to nominate a guest today. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.